Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to Neom's founder and creative director, Nicola Elliott. Neom is one of the first and fastest growing wellbeing brands in the UK, which specializes in natural fragrances with the likes of candles, homeware, skincare, and treatments. What were you keen to find out about Nicola in this episode? I think we grew up, or when we were growing up, there was very much like a hustle culture that was present in in social media. It was like work every hour of the day, get a side hustle, try and make as much money as possible, burn the candle at both ends, all those kinds of things. So that is a good pun as well, actually. Um, but it seems like there's been a shift from that kind of use every single hour in the day uh, and leverage as much as possible and it'll pay off in the future to finding balance and there's been an, a rise in people talking about their well-being, uh, a rise in mental health awareness. And it was interesting to ask Nicola about whether or not she's seen that change in the interest in Neom as a brand that is very much around self-care and taking that moment to relax. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the one of the interesting things for me was how she talked about her startup story. I think it, it's easy for founders to get caught up in the story and, and maybe uh, embellish uh, what it was like in the early days but i think nicola gave quite a, a, an honest account of what it was like you know stories like it if if they didn't get a certain number of orders uh, in a particular day then in the morning when she had to go and deliver those it would be a trip on the bus but if she actually if the business managed to make us over a certain number of sales in a particular day then she was able to actually get a taxi uh, to go and do that and go into work as well um which i, I found quite refreshing to actually get quite an honest account Nicola and her brand Neom are actually a client of ours, but it was really interesting to ask her about what is the right time for a brand to consider bringing an agency on board? So what do we think business owners can take from this conversation with Nicola? Uh, Nicola made quite a good point about why doing a side hustle before taking a plunge is a necessity, according to her. And then she did talk to us about her David Brent style exercise to make sure the output isn't boring. So. Uh, for this episode, this is Neom's founder and creative director, Nicola Elliott. Enjoy. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. That's quite all right. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So you're the founder and creative director of Neom Organics. Do you want to give us a quick summary of what Neom is and who you've built the brand for? So we are very much a well-being brand. We're 17 years old, so we're not such a baby brand anymore. We exist to help with four pillars of well-being as we see kind of the key pillars of well-being. So that's better sleep, less stress, boosting your energy, lifting your mood. And we do it through 100% natural fragrances. But the brand now has about 138. I hesitate because we're always adding new SKUs and, and chopping others. But about 138 different SKUs, that's product lines. And so we cover everything from home fragranced body to skincare and you were previously an editor at glamour magazine so do you want to tell us about your time at glamour and almost how it led into starting neom so i was a journalist before i started neom so i've had two careers which it's funny actually quite a few uh, entrepreneurs in my age group certainly were journalists to start with so i don't know whether maybe subconsciously that sort of made me feel that that was a valid pathway. I think probably more so because I came from quite an entrepreneurial family. But yeah, being a journalist back in the 90s was brilliant fun. And um, I actually ended up 
kind of quite early on going into entertainment and that really meant celebrity. So I was doing all the celebrity covers, celebrity interviews, spent a lot of time going to LA and New York because that's where the entertainment industry was. It was brilliant time. It was great fun. But I think the thing that I took from it really was understanding how women worked, thought, responded and you would do that obviously through the reactions to the cover lines the covers the stories that you wrote and so I think my kind of confidence from that grew in in understanding what buttons would work and and what people wanted so it was kind of the best grounding I suppose in really understanding consumers and I made loads of great friends and you understand in the world of magazines the synergy between words and pictures I think that was really really important I think that's a skill that I you probably my best skill at Neon so I wasn't just a writer I'd also be interested in looking at the trend for the next person the next kind of celebrity people were going to be interested in the next kind of fashion the next way that you would interview someone all of those things so this complete melting pot I suppose of of interesting sort of data points but I got offered a job when I was about 26 editing a magazine, editor-in-chief. So my last job was associate editor, which is number two on Glamour, which, to be fair, was selling the most of any glossy magazine at the time. But then I got offered like my first editor-in-chief role. And I remember ringing my dad and, and he was like, you know, this is sort of moment where you decide, do you want to work for somebody else or do you want to work for yourself? But this is the crossroad. And I sort of thought it would be really you know, proud and cheering me on and 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 he wasn't. <laughs> and so I suppose that really made me think about things. And yeah, I think that was when I decided I was going to go for it and work for my work for myself. My next question was going to be about where you found your entrepreneurial drive and spirit, but you've spoken a little bit about the fact that you had an entrepreneurial family and mentioned your dad there. Do you want to talk about that relationship at all and where you pulled that inspiration from? Yeah, so my dad was like a second-hand car salesperson. He had a car auction in Yorkshire. I mean, it couldn't be further from a global beauty brand. I mean, literally chalk and cheese, obviously. And even now, if we talk about business, he just doesn't get... We're as far apart in our experience as as possible. You know, he doesn't understand uh, margins that we use. He doesn't understand protection of the brand he doesn't understand why he wouldn't just take cash you know it's a it's a very very different thing but the but the very very core principles I think are very similar and I think I grew up in a household where sort of your own control was the most important thing I was clever but not the most academic you know I was kind of middle and I went to quite an academic school where a lot of my friends went to Oxbridge that wasn't an option for me yeah I was relatively bright but I wasn't getting you know five A's at A level I was really good at English I was really good at art so I think there was relatively early on I knew I was gonna have to cut my cloth according to the skills that I had so kind of got this entrepreneurial sort of influence and this real you know take charge of yourself you know if you work for somebody else you'll always have somebody who ultimately makes those decisions for you then I sort of was kind of a bit forced into I'm really sure that you're going to go work at you know Goldman Sachs because you ain't that academic and so it's kind of a, a montage of all those things I think I'm bad at sticking within the confines of 
rules that probably would have been expected outside an entrepreneurial route. So yes, it was it came from him for sure, but I think they were the values that I recognised in myself relatively early on as well. I was quite similar in that I really enjoyed the more creative subjects at school and that's definitely what has led me into this field. But I think because of my preferences, I wouldn't have been able to do it without someone like Joe, who is slightly more left. We're both quite creative, but slightly more left-brained, where I think that you need... And I don't know if it was the same for you, someone to almost balance you out and, and work with you on the the things that actually make a business work outside of building a, a picture and things like that, which it sounds like you had a, a vision for something. What was the what was Neom's startup story? Did you need to find someone like that or did you kind of power through the Yes, yeah, so I have a business partner called I have a business partner called Oliver and we always say that I'm the magic and he's the machine or magic and logic, but I think it's the magic and the machine, really. And actually, it's quite a good way of dividing up the job specs because there are times where, as the business grows, you do cross over a bit. And I think you have to you have to be quite careful. I would say it always to people who are listening, don't always assume you've got to give away half of your business if you don't have that skill. Similarly, if it's the other way around. I do think, you know, that that's you, your gut instinct because, A, you haven't got it, and, B, you need the confidence from someone who has got it. And as, as a startup, that typically is a 50-50 founder. But I do think, you know, there's other ways that you can skin the cat. I think you can think about bringing someone on, you know, if it's finance that you haven't got, if it's operational knowledge, whatever it might be, and give them, if not some cash, some equity in the business. So I'm just always mindful of, of saying that there's two ways to do that. But Ollie and I very much are exactly that sort of split. And that's always been that's always been something that I was aware of. And it's not just that I I'm not great at it. I don't enjoy it. And I think, you know, it is a marathon, isn't it? It's not a sprint. And spending all that time doing something you don't enjoy and looking down the barrel of 10, 20 years maybe of setting yourself up for something which is which is the reality you've got to you've got to think yeah I really want to do this with the skills and the and the parts of the job that I really really love so that was really obvious to me from day one that I didn't want to do finance I didn't want to do operations I'm going to know my way around a PL, and I'm very much I very much like to be involved in the strategy of how that cash is spent deployed raised etc but an accountant I am not the first question I want to know is, what did that startup look like for you? So, how did how did it start on that first day where you've you know you've you've left that that job? Did 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 you turn down the editor in chief job? In well, interesting. So, actually, I did I did a side hustle. So it was important for me to do that, and I just don't know why anyone wouldn't do that. To me, that isn't that would be a non negotiable if I was sort of advising anyone now or even looking back retrospectively so I worked at Glamour and then went down to well first of all I didn't go down to four days a week I did go down to four days a week but initially I was doing evenings and weekends on Neon and then I went down to four days a week and you know might have took the odd phone call in the loo as well when I was like you know a supplier needs to be spoken to or whatever but but did it that way and then when I felt there was enough green shoots, then I was confident to go. So I, I just think that's like a that's an absolute no brainer um, to jump from something. I mean, clearly, if you're starting something from scratch or you've you know you've been at home anywhere, it's a different scenario. But to jump from something that's relatively stable, I would. I'm pretty ballsy, but I don't think I would advocate that. So I did it in in those sort of stages. And, you know, we always had this vision that we were going to create the brand that we've got today, but we couldn't afford to because 
MOQs, minimum order quantities of products are such that, you know, when you think, well, generally an, a, an MOQ or something might be five to 10,000. And by the way, that's per fragrance, per size. So it was like, oh my God, that was the first hurdle. It's like, well, we can't afford this. We had 15,000 pounds, seven and a half from me. I sold a car that had been given from my parents on my 21st birthday, but obviously it sort of dwindled in value. But it, but it was worth seven and a half thousand pounds. So that was great. So I had that. Ollie had some savings. We put them together. But £15,000, which is all that we had, it actually could only afford us to order a skew, one line of products. So we settled on candles because at that stage, 97% of candles in the UK and the USA, and actually it's not changed that much, were made of paraffin wax and scented only with synthetic fragrances. So we felt that there was a really, really clear story that we could tell around that product that made it a bit easier to penetrate that we were going to create something that was completely natural was only centered with natural fragrances so that they could work as well-being fragrances as you burn them and you inhaled the air so we felt that there was it was going to be easier on our teeny tiny budgets to explain that story then go head to head on in a beauty category and try and get a listing on a john lewis or something and then re and then try and retrain people to go natural on their skincare because by the way, rewind seventeen years, no one's interested in naturals. This is like the time of the cosmeceutical. People are putting you know doctor brands on their faces. So again, it felt like the one product that we could get the kind of greatest cut through with. So that's so that's what we did, and then and it would be the least risk. So we spent, if I remember rightly, we spent over just over two thirds on stock. And then we spent the remaining, probably about three, two thousand, three thousand pounds on a functioning website that could sell, which is quite unique because no one was obviously selling D2C. And, and then when we started selling, we had this rule that because candles are one kilogram, they still are now. So that's really heavy. They're really big. And we had this rule. If we'd sold five through the night, then I was allowed to expense getting a taxi to work to post the five and if it was less than five, Ollie made me struggle on the bus. So it's like, <laughs> there was a little bit of cash for <laughs> incidentals like that, you know? He'd be like, um, why has the taxi today cost you £10.20? And yesterday it was £9.50. And I was like, oh, do one. You know, that, <laughs> I was wrong with it. Oh, it sounds like me. Um, well, <laughs> one thing that I think is really, really good to point out in what you've just said as well is that obviously if you are a newer entrepreneur that is listening to this, listening to the amount of almost prep and understanding of the market, the research that you'd done into that skew, the understanding of the customer that you had and the real understanding of the risk that you were taking in investing into that single skew, just the amount of prep work that was almost done or it sounds like was done before you made the call. Because I think there's a lot of people that dive straight headfirst into something and because they're excited about starting a business and don't necessarily take that time to really understand who their product is for, why they're investing in it, why people are going to buy it. So I think that's a really good thing to take away from, from what you've just said there. Yeah, I mean, with a stock-based business, I did always feel slightly buoyed that if it all went totally wrong, we could go to like a market and just sell them for cost price. So there were, I always look for sort of insurances on things. I think in my head, even now, I'm always looking, what's the plan B? What's the plan C? What's the plan D? I always have to have that mentally in my life. I think I'm pretty ballsy, but the, but with like decent insurance behind me. 
so I think that that felt relatively safe. But yeah, we did do a lot of prep. I think you've got to balance that out. I think the most asked question I find is how do you know when you've got the idea or how did you come up with the idea and I always think I don't think you need to always think of the most radical idea I think quite often the best ideas are already out there and they're just due an upgrade and and then people say well you know I want you to do a I don't know a sustainable mug brand or something I'm making it up right but I found there's this little place in Winchester and they're also doing it I'm like they're so great that you've done the research, but then similarly, when you go too far the other way, sometimes I think, well, I haven't heard of that sustainable mug company. Have you? No. Have you? No. Have you? No. We haven't heard of it. So if we've not heard of it, they're not doing a very good job. Because I do find a lot of people come to me saying that. They're sort of waiting for like this this crazy, like really never done before idea. And I always say, well, it's never my preference because we found it very, very difficult explaining natural and we found well-being very hard to explain. Well-being now is obviously the biggest buzzword. There wasn't even a thing then. And with hindsight, we were far too early to the market. And so I always say to people, that was a real, it was the hardest thing in a way, was teaching people that. And so always consider if you're doing a mug brand, you don't need to teach people that it's a mug, it has a handle, you drink a thing out of it, like they know what a mug is. So if if you go in with a level of people's existing knowledge you're already sort of you're already quite far down that track so I'm not saying only do things that have been done I'm just saying don't poo-poo the things that feel like they that they're sort of you know stalwarts because there's room for reinvention of stuff and things that we need all over the place all the time I'm glad you mentioned that there was quite a few hurdles to getting this product off the uh, off the ground or this brand off the off the ground. You, you mentioned that you spent the, the, like a, a small portion of the initial fifteen thousand pounds that you had on a on a functional website that could deal with sales. That's also at a time where e-commerce is incredibly new. How long? Well, what was the stage where you looked at Neon and thought this is this is really starting to work and take off? And how long was it until that point? How long was it were you either getting a bus or a taxi to work and until until you got to that point? Do you know what? This is probably one of the hardest questions because I never really think that. I mean, I'd say the last couple of years only. And I think one of the driving forces, and I don't necessarily recommend this, but I do think this is I do see this a lot is in people who are always a little bit anxious that you're not there and so you keep working. There's definitely been moments where I remember taking the kids on holiday about four years ago and there was a woman in the pool who's relatively our kind of age demographic and she knew Neom and I thought, oh my God, she knows Neom. And that maybe, yeah, it's probably only four years ago. There sort of became little points. Now I would say pretty much anyone who's in our demographic, I would ask them and they'd know it. But that was only four years ago. That was sort of 13 years in. It's been brick by brick and there hasn't been one thing that's really catapulted us. There's been things that have had wow moments, stocking somewhere or a particular marketing campaign that we've run or a product that's gone nuts. People want that. <gasps> yes, and let me tell you, the trick of the trade is X or this is the one thing that's going to move the dial. I still look for it now. Every meeting I go to, somebody who knows more than me, I'm like, tell me, tell me. But there isn't. And I think if there is, 
then I don't believe that's a really sticky brand. If it's as easy as just going, the answer is X, there'll be loads more people doing it and then you wouldn't be that successful. So there is no answer. It's just lots of bits and pieces of things together. I mean, there's principles of ways of working that retrospectively I look back and go, you know, fewer bigger things, simple campaigns, simple explanation, you know, knowing your customer, all that kind of stuff, very much so. But we haven't had, I don't think, any real move the dial moments. I think it's been slowly, slowly. You mentioned quite a lot there about how brick by brick, but the in terms of building the brand, it's all those sort of like micro interactions that different people have with the brand. And, you know, Neom's got this uh, aspiration, really aspirational feel to the brand now. It's, it's, it's really an amazing brand. Is for for as any advice for anyone who's listening, is is there any sort of guiding principle, or is it just something that you have to feel out, as, as you say, or is there sort of something that you stick to or don't budge on whenever it comes to what should we do in this instance, or we might do this piece of marketing, should we do it or not? Is there anything that guides you in those decisions? I think a good exercise, I think a really good exercise, is to know what you wouldn't do, but that's close. Obviously, I'm not going to go and do a market stall, but what would I not do? So where's the li- where is the line in the sand? It's obviously not right over there, but where is that line in the sand? And it's good to do that with each of your departments, I think. So it might be a campaign. It might be tone of voice. It could be stockists. It could be the kind of staff that you want. You know, in fact, we went through this recently with, um, this is quite a good example, we just opened our new store and we brought on a new training manager who's brilliant. And I said to her, I said, there's something, there's something about our training that I feel we're missing and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And in the end, I said, do you know what? You go to, say, another one of our competitors, you would expect to see someone who's relatively polished and engaging and can have a lovely conversation with you about a lipstick or a bath oil or a top or something, right? That's relatively standard. Our customers come into our store and they are talking about quite big well-being issues in their life. They do this thing called the scent discovery test and we find out that they, their well-being need is that they're not getting good enough quality sleep, they're not sleeping enough, they're not in effect, they haven't got enough energy or their moods. So these are quite big, meaty topics, right? And we were employing quite a lot of young people and they were great, bubbly and all the rest of it. But my feeling was that even though they were great in all the traditional ways, they weren't someone that the vast majority of us would think had the confidence and the life experience to talk to us about those big, meaty, important well-being topics. And so that's where someone is or something is right, but not quite right for your brand. And so now we have this principle where anyone who works for Neon, you have to think if you had a really bad thing happened to you that day, your boyfriend had left you or your mum, you'd found that was ill or something, would you feel comfortable and confident to clear an hour out, sit down with him or her and take advice from him or her? Such a weird way of looking at things compared to what our competitors would do, right? But actually that then becomes the funnel for which the neon tone of voice comes to life in store. So I would say, what's that principle when it comes to you know, I don't know, if you you make an armchairs, is it an armchair that you can sit in all day Sunday, you know, from from nine until nine and your back doesn't hurt? 
again, off the top of my head, but what's that funny little test that you would do that just adheres to your brand promise and what's different about your brand than somebody else? Um, and, And I could think of that for many different brands and many different services. And actually, they're really good ways because we talk a lot about culture now, don't we? And I'm so bored to tears of seeing people's culture things being like, be inclusive and make the difference. It's like, well, surely that's the same with your business to mine to the next. They're so anodyne. What's those things that, you know, that really make you unique? Because once you figure those out, you know, I like I like the taglines that we do. I like them to be spiky. I just want you to go, oh. And, and and I have things like in a, in a meeting, and this is this sounds so terribly David Brent of me, but it works. I have this this awful, but I might have this joke about my own borometer, and my borometer goes off when everything's right, but I, it's just a bit boring. We make it a joke so people aren't offended. Well, mainly they're not offended. <laughs> they might be sometimes, but you know. I'll just just feel like I can hear the barometer a bit in the background. And everyone's like, I get it. I'm like, it's brilliant. Colours are right. It's beautiful. It feels good. Just can hear it tingling in the background. So I think it's good to build those little things into your in into your workplace or your product line or your service that are quite unique. And then stress test them against your peers. Because if you go actually our peers wouldn't do that then you're starting to get some real guidelines for what works for you and not for them your first product was the candle when did you decide to release more products and how did you know that was the right decision well it was just go 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 we didn't want to be you know pigeonholed into candles which is something i would again always you know advise what you start with is is what you you know you're known for so you do have to be mindful of moving quite quick from that think it was also a real idea behind us talking about the fragrances of which you experience through a candle. We used to call them home treatments. In fact, the, the front, the first candles had home treatment written on. We didn't call them candles. And we sold them, you know, to receptionists and spas so that they could say, oh, did you enjoy your feeling of relaxation today when you came out of a massage? And then the, you know, the customer would say yes. And they would say, well, you can continue that feeling at home. You like this and between an hour to two hours, you breathe it in and the treatment effects start working. So we, everything, even the cell was about positioning it differently. But in answer to your question, oh God, how quick did we go? Two to three years. Too long, really. Too long. I'd say go quicker if you could. I think both Joe and I are part of a generation where it was like a rite of passage to have a side hustle of some kind. It was almost like the the hustle lifestyle was glamorized in a lot of ways. And I think we've almost watched that overturn as more people realize that you can't really live like that for a long amount of time. And it's caused a lot of things like burnout um, and people effectively discovering that you need balance uh, in a lot of ways. So was that attitude shift in our kind of age bracket and I guess Gen Z as well are very aware of this has that been reflected in the growth of Neom have you seen that kind of reflected in interest in the brand yeah definitely I mean it's been hugely helpful for us because your generation has so much not only more understanding but so much more of an appetite than my generation so I'm 44 
when I started, and I was 28 when I started Neon. So I ended up, I remember thinking, good God, my life has come to this. Going to do some training at a spa, there was 44 beauty therapists, all female. And I was saying, explaining the natural provenance and how the well-being benefits work because we use natural essential oils. And and they were organic. A lot of the products were organic. And and I had to get in the end, the knowledge was so not there, not at all. I had to get two carrots and explain, right, this is a GM grown carrot and this is an organic carrot. Does anyone know the difference? Does anyone know the process difference? Does anyone know why you would choose this versus this? By the way, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not an evangelist. I don't I'm not advocating you must you must only do this but I do think if you're working in that industry you would have some sort of knowledge no one knew anything none of my contemporaries knew or cared none of my friends who by the way 12 years in journalism a lot of my best friends then even now were beauty journalists no knowledge no one could turn a packet round and read the inky on the back so it was just on the floor it's a joy to see your generation have way more knowledge, way more understanding. I think that's one thing, that basic knowledge. I think also it is still, it's relatively cool now to look after yourself. So I think that's been helpful. I think the fact that there's loads of people talking about well-being, commercially for me, it's not even a bad thing, the people who are well-being washing. At least everyone is talking about it. So I think they are all the massive fundamental changes. And it's been phenomenal how much that's that's changed yeah and i've I've got to say shout shout out to the pillow mist as well thank you i i I love that stuff obviously as as a creative person and being the creative director of of neom and it being your brand you will have a really strong idea of what you want to achieve obviously and you hadn't worked with agencies for for a very long time what made you think that it was a, a good time to start to work with agencies for for yourselves and when do you think it is the right time for, for other brands as well? Um, I don't necessarily think it's a good time to work with agencies. I don't think agency is good or bad. I think they can be both for various different reasons. I think the key thing is that, you know, like anyone who you employ, you've got to have someone who brings something really brilliant to the party. It's as simple as that. Outsourcing to an agency because you can't find someone for me wouldn't be wouldn't be the way that I would approach it. So you guys came with a really really good reputation, and you know I think you've also got to know in business what you know and what you don't know. That's a really great skill. I'm pretty good at going. Listen, there's ten ten things that we need to build a business. I'm absolutely shit hot at two, four, and seven, and pretty crap at the rest. So you've got to know where your own limitations are. And as I said, you know, I'm 44. It's my daughter who's on TikTok and is going, oh, mum, God, don't do that. Or she comes into the office on the day off and does this, you know, what that, what's that thing? I was like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, God, you've not got this on Neon. It's like, so, so, you know, I know my limitations. So, you know, I think there's things where you instinctively go, listen, I know this better than anyone else in the country. I'm going, I'm, I'm pushing ahead. And then there's other things where you go, I really don't know. So let's go back and think, right, let's look at reputation. Let's understand the logic behind it. I've got a good vibe about you. And then that's like we would do with anything. Let's take the emotion out of this and put some good, put a good path in place. If we do this and you say you can do that and we get to there, 
you want great people in your business and and that variety of thinking and that variety of skills you've, you've got to be committed to where they come from is secondary can you identify any big lessons that you've learned over your career that you would want to pass on to someone if they were if you were their mentor or if if you could advise them in any way I'd say be really aware of thinking other people are experts. You automatically think you don't know much and you might have to gather facts and you might have to do research. But ultimately, nobody knows your brand better than you know your brand. Because entrepreneurship is not rocket science, right? It's, It's a lot of common sense. It's a lot of jack of all trades. And so I think you shouldn't minimise yourself and think, oh, there's this person doing this great thing or running this much bigger brand than me. They'll know so much more. People are always shocked, I think, when you get up to the next level of how little the people there know. Because also, as the business grows every year, I've not run a business this size before. I've run a business the tranche beneath and the tranche beneath that. But it's always new. And so I think that's something that I see people lose confidence because they think I've never done this. I've never done this before. I've never done this before. It's like, well, no, but nobody's done it before because they've not done your brand and your product and your sector at your time. You know, even if someone was recreating a neon now, the bit, or if I was recreating a neon Mark II, it would be decidedly different because it's a different time. I think you instinctively know a lot more than you think. It's really interesting you say that because we've found very similar things. I think that's true across any industry in in any sector. Because even us, in a mentor, you look for someone who has been there and done it before. But the nature of them doing that means that they probably did it 10, 20 years ago. And things that worked then may not necessarily work now. So whilst there's some principles that I think you can gather, absolutely, you can't take a blueprint or a playbook from the way that they built a business in their time because it's... Yeah. You've got to be really mindful with the mentor that they haven't got an ego, which is really hard to find in people who've done particularly well. And I'll tell you what, I had this situation the other night with someone and we had a discussion about something and he had done bigger, greater things than me and was 30 years older, right? And we disagreed on something, not majorly, not... It wasn't bad, but it was like, should we open a shop in, I don't know, place X? And I said yes, and he said no, or vice versa. I can't remember what the what the disagreement was. But we went kind of a bit far down that discussion. And then in the end, he said this thing. He said, well, at the end of the day, I've been doing this for 40 years, and I know it doesn't work because of X, Y, Z. And I thought, don't do that to me. Don't do that thing where you trump me right at the end because you've got more experience. Because then we can never have a... We can never have a frank conversation because it's always going to win. If if that can be played as a card, it's always going to win. And then as I kind of got a bit older and a bit kind of more, more savvy about that as a point of principle, then I sort of started putting my foot down a bit more. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. You know, you're sat there and you're talking about something that, by the way, is a difference between success and failure. And then there's the two of you. And are you really going to put your foot down, Joe, and fight against the person that's 20 years old when Alex is going, come on, Joe, like this is the difference between us making this and making that. And I need this because I've got a kid at home. And, you know, it's like the pressure for you then to go, no, my principle, it's, it's my brand. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's a mind game, that then. So you've got to get your head in the right space. But honestly, I think 
believe, believe it from me, she says, saying exactly what I've told you. I've had as many people say that and it not be the right advice. I also think the most valuable advice that we've kind of ever gotten has been from people who are only just yes. ahead of us yes. or sort of on the same path because they they get they get it they they're going through a lot of the same problems they might solve it in a different way that you'd not thought of those kinds of things we have a lot of close friends which is actually leads quite nicely into joe's next question that that we'll speak to who are in different businesses different categories entirely but the problems are sometimes similar so yeah i think it's more valuable to i would say that with staff alex as well we've made that that would be a mistake we've made as thinking you know back in the early days oh they've come from l'oreal or something and it's like oh well they'll know well of course they don't because they're used to having you know someone doing the photocopying and they're making them a sausage sandwich and la la and it's like you want someone who's just that stage ahead and they can help you with what's the next viable step or the the next steps to watch out for i agree one of the things that i always find interesting is the significant people in typically founders' lives and how those significant people have impacted not only their lives or the, uh, more over their business. Is there any particular person or set of people that have impacted your life or your career in a significant way? Um, yeah, there's quite a few. We've had some early stage investors who we chose well with. There was times where Ollie and I would go and sit and one guy, Michael, we'd sit on his couch and it was meant to be like an unofficial board meeting because it's basically only me Ollie and like two of the people that work for us it ended up being like a counseling session and um he'd been there and done that and it was just basically we just left with like calm down calm down calm down was the message just I mean and a few of the bits and pieces like you want to do that with your margin and you want to do that with your bloody blah but basically, he was great. And then another lady who came on later called Alex Pike, who'd worked at Unilever, who I love, who's a dear friend, and she was brilliant. And then lastly, we took on private equity funding, and our private equity fund have been good. They they are. I mean, as I've got older, I'm good, I suppose, better with most relationships of knowing, look, you know, people are good at that, but not that. So I think... I've and become better at sort of putting people in, in the context and getting the context of information from them that, that I sort of want and need. Um, but but Piper, our private equity, they've been great as well. And I still go to my journalist friends, my best friends are all journalists, and they've got a great grasp on whether something's just interesting, you know, just good enough. It might be a product, it might be an idea, it might be a strap line, it might be a campaign, it might be a place where we have an event. I'll always go to them and go, is this cool or not? My daughter, definitely with younger stuff, but I mean, I just have to like give over to her because I have no idea. So I think different people for different things. My boyfriend's in finance, so I would ask him definitely about, you know, much more kind of rigorous business things. My dad, I still go to... um, very good at kind of deal structure. And definitely if my head's in a bad place, I'll speak to him. My mum knows nothing about business and has never worked. She's like a typical 80s housewife. But she's very good at being kind of very, um, she's got high EQ. And that's what it is, isn't it, really? It's just that's that's the kind of business that we're in. So we'll ask her things sometimes now because actually kind of removed from all of the detail is where the best answer lie. So I ask a lot of people. Well, I think that's a really good place to 
to end the podcast. So you're a very, very inspiring person to speak no, to. Energy is very infectious. So thank you so much for giving us some of your time and joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps.